0: Well, good morning, let's open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, and this morning we're in commandment number four, I hope my uh, deeply congested voice doesn't bother you this morning (laughs) too much, I'm just getting over something, I don't know what it is, but anyway, it's all good. Exodus chapter 20 verses 8 through 11, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath. Uh, What a humbling week this has been to be face to face with one of the most debated um, commandments of all, right? Um, Many differences of opinion as to what this commandment actually means. And so uh, I'm not gonna pretend like I can solve all the issues. There were many rabbits that I could have chased this week, but hopefully this will make sense to you. And I am aware of the fact that uh, it is unlikely all of you will agree with uh, my handling of these verses or agree with my conclusions. And that is, that is okay, but I hope that uh, you will know that I prayed And I sought the spirit of God because he alone can give us understanding on his word. So as we dive in, into our study of the fourth commandment, let me see if I can help us by setting this up first by reminding us of something of critical importance. I want to bring your attention to the fact that all of us, we're all fighting sin, all of us. We're all fighting sin as it affect both our understanding of biblical truth, our submission to biblical truth, and our application of biblical truth. Let us not forget this simple yet all important fact of living, living in a fallen world. The world does influence our thinking. Now, let me see if I can explain this a little further by bringing you into some of the insights uh, given to us by church historian Carl Truman, who wrote a book titled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Let me ask, how many of you have read that book? Okay, a few hints, actually two or three, three, okay. Not very many. Wonderful book, highly recommended. And it has this subtitle, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Freedom. Now the whole book focuses on the issue of the sexual revolution. And Carl Truman looks at some of the key elements that have contributed to the growth of that movement in the world. So he traces some of the main thinkers along with their main ideas, and how each of these have helped shape our current society. In the opening chapter of this book, Truman provides the following illustration to set the stage for the rest of the book. He says this, and I quote, the origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why the following statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. I am a woman, trapped in a man's body. My grandfather died in 1994, less than 30 years ago. And yet, had he ever heard that sentence uttered in his presence, he would have burst out laughing and consider it a piece of incoherent gibberish. And yet today, it is a sentence that many in our society regard as not only meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to yet another irrational phobia." End quote. Now, the rest of Truman's book is about answering the question, why is this the case? Have you ever thought about that? Why is it that if you would have said, I am a woman trapped in a man's body 40 years ago, people would have been puzzled and confused. But if you say the same sentence today, most people would understand what that means. Interesting, isn't it? Truman answers that question, at least in part in the title of the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, the key word being modern. In that title, by using that expression, modern self, Truman is hinting at the fact that human understanding is always subject to modifications, even when it comes to our understanding of something as fundamental and essential as the self or what it means to be human. So what is the modern self that has risen and triumphed? In short, it is the autonomous self, the independent self, the self that is guided by inner impulses, desires, and motives, rather than by objective and absolute truth. And since this is the prevalent notion or concept of the self, then the sentence, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, begins to make sense. Why is this important? Why is this an important insight for dealing with the fourth commandment for the following reason? Reason. We too have been and are being influenced by modern ideas of the self as that which is independent, autonomous, and able to do what it pleases. Yet the fourth commandment stands as a direct challenge to this modern notion. Make no mistake about it, you and I are not immune To the allurements of worldly thinking, no one in this room is. Our minds, our affections, our motives can all be deeply affected by our surrounding culture. Therefore, before we even consider the fourth commandment, ask yourself these questions. Do I have a proper understanding of who I am in Christ? Do I remind myself constantly that I am not my own, but that I belong both in body and soul to the Lord Jesus Christ who bought me with his own blood. Do I know that my identity is bound to Christ and that he is my life? If these questions are not in place before we look at the fourth commandment, then you will have a negative reaction to much of what I will say this morning. Why? Once again, because to some degree or another, we too have been influenced by worldly thinking. The modern, autonomous, independent self has risen and triumphed in the world. We, however, as Christians, must remain a people of the word. Of the word. In fact, gathering on Sundays, what we're doing here today, involves our willful, openness to both theological correction and practical guidance for the sake of holiness. So here is my commitment to you. I will speak to you in humility. Here's my request of you that you listen in humility. So with all that in the back of our minds, let's read our text. Exodus 20 verse eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy six days. You shall labor and do all your work. So here's the first point for us to consider this morning. If you're following uh, with the notes, sermon notes, this is the first one. Let's consider its basic description. When I say its basic description, I'm talking about the the Sabbath day. Its basic description, consecration and rest. We're talking about the basics here. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. On it, you shall not do any work. I want to begin with the basics. It is clear from the text itself that the Old Testament Sabbath was a relatively simple commandment. It literally consisted of two basic elements, consecration to God and rest from daily work. Simple enough. Yes. Simple enough. This is really, there's really not a lot of confusion in that regard. When God tells the Israelites to keep the day holy, holy, He meant that this particular day, the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week, Saturday, was to be set apart as a special day, a day unlike any other day of the week. To keep it holy meant to dedicate that day, holy, completely to the Lord and spend it in thanksgiving and praise. Very simple. In fact, If you want to see a picture of what the heart of the Sabbath day looked like, all you have to do is you can open your Bibles to Psalm 92. And in fact, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Psalm 92. And we're not going to read the Psalm, but I want you to pay attention to the Hebrew subtitle, the subtitle uh, that actually belongs to the Psalm. Psalm 92. Psalm 92 and what, are the, 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 what is the subtitle? It says, a psalm, a song for what? The Sabbath. Psalm 92 was a psalm that was written for the Sabbath. So if we want to see what the Sabbath was about, what the heart of it was about, you can read Psalm 92. And we're not going to read it, but I want you to consider some of the elements that we see in this particular psalm. In verses 1 through 5, we see the element of praise to God for his love, his faithfulness, and his works. That is verses 1 through 5. In verses 6 through 11, we see the celebration of the defeat of God's enemies. And then in verses 12 through 15, <clears throat> we see the proclamation of the righteousness of God from the mouth of his people. From this, from this Psalm alone, Psalm 92, we learn that the Sabbath day was not primarily a matter of not working, but of focusing on God's glory. It was a day of joy and thanksgiving. And notice how in verse two of Psalm 92, The psalmist talks about declaring God's love in the morning and God's faithfulness. When at night, much of the day was about praising the Lord was about giving thanks to God. Consider the words of Charles Spurgeon as he commented on Psalm 92. He said this, and I quote the subject of Psalm 92 is the praise of God. And then he said this praise is, is sabbatic work, the joyful occupation of resting hearts. I love that. Praise is sabbatic work, the joyful occupation of resting hearts. Is your heart resting this morning? Are you at rest? Since a true Sabbath, Spurgeon continues, can only be found in God, it is wise to meditate upon him on the Sabbath day, The creation, I'm sorry, the Sabbath was set apart for adoring the Lord in his finished work of creation, hence the suitableness of this psalm, end quote. So therefore, the Sabbath day or day of rest, which is literally what the word Sabbath means, was primarily about consecration to God. Now that little phrase means to an end, you've heard that phrase is helpful here. The Sabbath consisted of those two elements, the means and an end. The end of the Sabbath day was praise and adoration. That was the goal. Resting from work was the means by which this was accomplished. So you rested from work in order to praise, in order to give thanks to God. Now, I don't want to minimize the element of rest, of actually ceasing from daily work. That was definitely an important component of the fourth commandment. They were told you shall not do any work, but rest from work was never meant to be done in isolation from praise and adoration. So there you have it. That's the basic description of the Sabbath day. All of this leads us into our second consideration, which is a bit heavier. Okay. So I need you to really think about this. The second point is this. It's two Old Testament pillars. It's two Old Testament pillars. Upon which, upon what was the Sabbath built? What was the foundation? Two words. Redemption and creation. Redemption and creation. Consider verse two of Exodus 20. I am The Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That is the context. We've talked about this before, right? Several weeks ago. Consider verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth and rested on the seventh day. As I said, immediately we see two massive pillars upon which the Sabbath day or the fourth commandment was built, namely redemption from slavery in Egypt, verse two, and creation week, verse 11. Those are the two pillars, all right? Is that clear? Redemption from Egypt, creation. Therefore, the Jewish Sabbath was about commemorating these two massive events. Consider with me the first pillar, redemption from Egypt. If God introduces the 10 commandments with this reminder concerning their redemption from slavery, then the Sabbath day was about celebrating what? Celebrating what freedom, freedom, right? This is the preamble. I brought you out of slavery. Now you're going to keep the Sabbath. So therefore Sabbath keeping was about celebrating freedom. If you think about it, the fourth commandment was the reversal of life in Egypt. Have you thought about that? In Egypt, life was all about forced labor due to slavery. The Sabbath day was all about resting in light of freedom. Consider the second pillar, creation week. God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, by including creation week in the instructions regarding the Sabbath day, God is essentially explaining to the Israelites that resting from their labors was modeled for them by God himself. Thus, the Sabbath was a form of imitating God, as they followed the pattern established by the Lord himself during the first week of the existence of the universe. Massive two pillars, massive two pillars upon which the Sabbath day was built or founded or grounded redemption from slavery and creation week. Let me ask you this. Can these pillars get any stronger? Well, the answer is yes. The answer is Yes. Which brings us to our third point of consideration. It's New Testament application. It's New Testament application. I can guarantee you something this sermon could have been five hours long. Okay? Please understand. This could have been five hours long. It's New Testament application. As we cross over into the New Testament, I must state this loud and clear. Okay. I still believe in the Ten Commandments. Emphasis on the number 10. It seems to me that many people believe the Fourth Commandment was somehow left behind with the coming of the Lord Jesus. You probably know someone like that. Maybe you are one of those, one of them. For some people, the fourth commandment is the only one out of the 10 that for some reason just dropped with the dawning of the Christian era. But do we really dare call them the nine commandments now? I wouldn't dare that, do that. The nine commandments sounds weird, doesn't it? So let me give you the interpretative grid, how we're going to go about this. I have three main points that I need you to keep in mind. As we consider, as we cross over into the new Testament and consider the nature of the fourth commandment, here's the first one, the moral nature of the fourth commandment, the moral nature of the fourth commandment demands its perpetuity. The moral nature of the fourth commandment demands its perpetuity. The fourth commandment is not given in isolation. The fourth commandment belongs to a unit called what? The, starts with an M, followed by an O, then an R, A, L. (laughs) I gave you the whole world. It belongs to a unit called the moral law of God. It belongs to a unit. It's not given in isolation. It's not its own thing. And then you have nine and then you have one here in isolation. No, it belongs to the moral law of God. That fact alone should give us reason to pause before we cast this commandment aside. It's over. It's done with. Therefore, the principle contained in the Sabbath commandment transcends cultural contexts it has to it has to now what about this argument i've heard it many times if it is not repeated in the new testament we are not bound to obey it have you heard that one before have you used that one before ah it's a different question let me ask you this that's that's a tricky argument i can understand some of it it's a tricky one Can you point to places in the new Testament where any of the first four commandments are restated explicitly or word for word, any of them word for word, explicitly you shall not take the name of the Lord, your God in vain. Just think about it. Something for you to chew on. Moreover, what about, other moral commands that uh, are not transferred into the New Testament. For instance, in Leviticus 18, verse 23, we have a command against bestiality. That's an important one, right? It's a moral command. You're not going to find it in the New Testament. Are we not bound to that command anymore then? Because we don't see it in the new Testament. I hope not. I hope not. Some things are taken for granted. So that's the first aspect that I want you to consider about about the fourth commandment. As we go into the new Testament, the moral nature of the fourth commandment demands its perpetuity. The second thing I want you to consider is this, the work of Christ deepens its meaning the work of Christ deepens its meaning. This is probably the heart of the argument that I'm presenting to you this morning. So I need you to pay attention. If you were taking a nap, you need to wake up. Okay. Because this one matters here. The work of Christ deepens its meaning. Remember the two old Testament pillars that I mentioned for the Sabbath. I said it like 10 minutes ago. I hope you still remember that redemption from Egypt was one. And creation of the world was the second pillar. And remember how I asked if those two pillars could become any stronger? And what was my brief answer? Yes, now I will explain. Follow along your notes. What are the two New Testament pillars? Full redemption. And new creation. Full redemption or complete redemption and a new creation. Are not these two pillars, the very essence of what we celebrate as Christians? Isn't the work of Christ even better now in the New Testament era? We don't celebrate just a physical redemption from physical slavery. What we celebrate is complete redemption from slavery to sin, death and hell in both body and soul. Christ offers us full redemption. And we not only celebrate the creation of the world, but what the creation of a brand new humanity, a new world. Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Christ himself said, behold, I am making all things new. Let me ask you this. If redemption from Egypt and the creation of the world were enough to make sense of the fourth commandment in the Old Testament, don't we have even more reason To make sense of the fourth commandment now? Yes. For we have even better reasons. But now let us ask. When did these two massive events take place? That full redemption and new creation. Well, this brings us to the core event in the New Testament. What is the core event in the history of redemption? Redemption. The resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. In John chapter 20, verse one, the apostle introduces the resurrection of the Lord with these words, now on the first day of the week, two things are relevant for our discussion this morning. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, not the seventh This event marked a fundamental change. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus, listen to this, don't miss this. The resurrection of Jesus was the event in redemptive history, the event that ushered in what? Full redemption and a new creation. So significant was the resurrection that now the disciples begin to break bread together on the first day of the week, according to Acts chapter 20, verse one, and they collect offering on the same day. First Corinthians 16, one and two. So now we have a new name. Now we have a new name. The Lord's day. The Lord's day. Now, I understand this is a highly debated issue. I'm, I'm telling you where I land right now as of, Today, based on what I understand, I believe this is the new name given to the Sabbath. is the Lord's day. Now, consider this, the pillars upon which the fourth commandment was grounded, they haven't disappeared. In fact, with the coming of Christ, these pillars only became stronger. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead changes everything. It marks the beginning of a new age, the last days. Christ is the first fruits of a new world, a better creation. Moreover, his resurrection is God's universal declaration that redemption has been accomplished. And it all took place on the first day of the week, Sunday. Therefore, it is the Lord's day, which is what, what the apostle Paul John The apostle John called it in revelations one verse 10, the Lord's day, brothers and sisters consider with me, there is no greater event to remember and celebrate than the inauguration of a new creation and the accomplishment of our full redemption by Christ's resurrection. This is why we are here Sunday after Sunday, after Sunday, this is the Lord's day. If anything, we have even more reason to set this day aside than the Old Testament saints did. Better reasons. And the second major aspect that I want you to consider, if you're following your notes, is this. Our new covenant relationship with God reveals its present relevancy. Our new covenant relationship with God reveals its present relevancy. We observe the Lord's day because in the first place, it reflects our present spiritual reality. It reflects our present spiritual reality. Now I'm going to make a point here that I, hopefully you won't miss in the creation account in Genesis one and two, we see something very, very important. We cannot afford to miss God went from working to resting. You see that in the, in the creation week. God worked for six days and rested on the seventh. Why is this important? Did God rest because he was tired? Just needed a little break. Well, We, we know that's not true. That would contradict many other doctrines that we know to be true. Why did God rest on the seventh day? This seventh day resting is extremely, extremely important because of the language itself. First, consider with me, and I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 66, verse one. Consider how the creation of the universe is interpreted by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 66, verse one. We are going to read the first half of this verse. Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, please don't miss this. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Having read that verse alone, let me ask you this simple question. Simple question. When God created heaven and earth, what did he create? Answer, by creating heaven and earth, God created his own temple. God created his own temple. What is heaven? God's throne. What is earth? His footstool. By creating heaven and earth, God created his own temple. This was the original purpose of the creation of the world. It was meant to be a temple for God. It is as though God created the universe and then sat down as king. He sat down as king. He didn't need rest. He's sending a message to the whole world. This is my domain. This is my kingdom. In a very real sense. And as Richard Barcellus says, the pinnacle of creation week is the seventh day for on that day, God sent a message. I am King. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Are you following what I'm saying? Now, are you and I say chapter 66 verse one? Good. Let's ask a follow up question. What is the purpose of temples according to the Old Testament? Well, let us read the second half of the same verse. Isaiah 66, one second half. God asks, "What is the house that you would build for me?" And then he asks this, "And what is the place of my what? My rest. My rest. What does sabbath mean? Rest. What is the place of my rest the place of my Sabbath God created the world and rested in his temple the cosmos now consider this consider this Jesus made a new creation and by his resurrection he entered what his rest how do we know this don't miss this we know this because just as God rested from his work after creating the world, so too Jesus rested after ushering in the new creation and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And what does Ephesians 2, 6 say? It says that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is our present spiritual reality and the Lord's day. As we gather together for praise, worship and rest, we are reminded of the fact that we too are seated with Christ already enjoying our rest in the heavenly places, but we live in tension, don't we? We live in a constant tension In in this uh, category known as the already, not yet, already, not yet, we are already in our rest with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places, but not yet. Therefore, number two in your notes, we observe the Lord's day because it anticipates our future glory. It anticipates our future glory. I want you to consider with me how the book of Revelation describes hell. This is Revelation's description of hell. In Revelation 14:11, "And the smoke of their torment, people's torment, goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest." Day or night. Hell is a restless place. Consider now in Revelation 14 13 how it describes heaven. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed says the spirit that they may rest from their labors. Hell, a restless torment. Heaven, it's all about rest. Eternal rest with Christ will be our glory. So, with those theological foundations in place, let me just offer you a few general principles for obedience. For obedience. The first one is this the Lord's day is for our enjoyment. The Lord's day is for our enjoyment. Rest from our labors is never meant to be seen as a burden, but always as a gift to be enjoyed. Hence the words of our Lord, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, The Sabbath was never meant to be a burden, but a joy designed for our good. Only when a heart embraces either legalism or libertinism, the Sabbath becomes a burden. But from the proper lenses, the Lord's day is for our joy. Number two, the Lord's day involves God-centered self-denial. The Lord's day involves God-centered self-denial. Denial. I'm going to read from the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 13 and 14, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. I, I liked that translation for this particular verse better. Consider what it says If, because of the Sabbath, you restrain your foot from doing as you wish on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a pleasure, and the holy day of the Lord honorable and honor it, delighting or desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord. What is the Sabbath day? What is the Lord's day about? It's about learning to delight in the Lord. We see here in Isaiah 58, a clear element of self-denial for the purpose of God-centeredness. But you may say, aren't all days supposed to be God-centered? Yes, but the point of the Lord's day is to be able to focus on God without your daily distractions and responsibility. That's the whole point. In short, the Lord's day is God's gracious gift to us so that we might learn to delight in him more and more. You neglect this day to your own detriment. Number three, the Lord's day assumes actual communion with the saints. I'm sorry about this congestion. The Lord's day assumes actual communion with the saints. I think it's important for us to remind ourselves that the gathering together of the saints has never been optional for believers. The fact that at certain times in history, or that at certain points in our individual lives, we are unable to meet does not negate the truth that Christians have been called to gather together. And this by God's design, don't take this lightly. Prioritizing the Lord's day by setting time aside to meet with your brothers and sisters is a means through which God sustains your life. It is for your good and for his glory. Number four, The Lord's day requires faith. The Lord's day requires faith. At the end of the day, God is the one who provides for you. God is the one who provides for you. Therefore, the Lord's day is an invitation to begin our week by by reminding ourselves of our utter dependence on him for all things, both material and spiritual. And we do so by faith. This is why in the new Testament, we see the saints not only meeting together on the first day of the week, but they also collected money on that day. The Lord's day was set aside so that the saints could give financially to the work of the ministry. You see the Lord's day not only requires your faith in the sense that you are walking in full dependence on God by not working, but you're also operating in faith by giving, contributing to the work of the ministry. Number five, the Lord's day opposes, opposes legalism, opposes legalism. If I had to come up with a theory as to why the fourth commandment gets a bad reputation among Christians, I would say it is this. The Sabbath is normally associated with legalism. At least it's one of the reasons. I think some denominations, like the Pharisees uh, Pharisees did in the New Testament, they have used it in a legalistic way. But the fact that some people abuse the day doesn't mean we shouldn't care about it. Let me ask you this. Do you think it is legalistic to not commit adultery? It's all legalism, right? It's about following rules and norms. Why don't we commit adultery? Which is one of the 10 commandments, by the way. Well, hopefully not because we are legalistic but precisely because we are under grace, right? Because we're under grace and grace leads us to love, not to legalism. Then why would it be legalistic to set one day aside for the purpose of worship and fellowship and rest? Number six, the Lord's day teaches us true freedom. The Lord's day teaches us true freedom. Freedom, this is the bottom line. The Lord's day is about freedom. What type of freedom? We could describe it in several ways. First, the Lord's day is about freedom from our labors toward salvation. Sundays are a constant reminder that we are free from the curse of the law, sin, and death. Sundays are a constant reminder that our bonds of sin and shame have been broken. But it doesn't stop there. The Lord's day is a constant reminder that we can indeed be free from the cares and anxieties of this world. We are not slaves to our work. We are not slaves to our work. We are not slaves to money. We are not slaves to anything else this world can offer. We are slaves to righteousness. We belong to God. Sundays are a gift to, God, to God's church so that we don't forget that if God cares for the bear, bear, birds of the, that's easy for me to say, birds of the air and the flowers of the field, so too he will care for us. Every Sunday we come together, we remind ourselves that he actually care for us. Our lives are in his hands. And number seven, the Lord's day points To the greatest truth about us. The Lord's day points to the greatest truth about you and I. And by the way, let me just throw this out there. The greatest truth about you is not what you do every day, is not your work, is not your degree, is not what type of work you do. None of that. This day represents the greatest truth about you. What is that truth? We are one with Christ. We're one with Christ. Consider how small all other truths about you are compared to this one single life transforming truth. We are one with Christ. And just as Christ entered his rest, so too we will enter our rest. The Lord's day points to this amazing truth. Therefore, and since this is the greatest truth about you, and since the Lord's day points to it, you must prioritize this day after all when we set aside Sunday as the Lord's day for the purpose of rest and focused worship and fellowship, we do so because we are the people of God. We know God in Christ and by the spirit, we have a unique special relationship to God. And on Sundays we celebrate this life defining truth. We could even say it like this. Eternity will be the actualization of everything we have in Christ. Every Lord's day is a small window into our eternal joy. This is why Sunday is the most important day of our week because Sunday, every Sunday, every Lord's day is a small window into our eternal joy. As we bring this to a close, I see the need to point out the fact that this sermon marks the end of our study on the first four commandments, the first table of the law. Why is that important? It is important because the first four commandments are all about our relationship to God. The first commandment was about the exclusive and singular nature of God's existence. The second commandment was about the essence of proper worship. The third commandment was about the sacred quality of God's name. And the fourth commandment was about the need to set aside the first day of the week for the purpose of focused and uninterrupted rest and worship. In short, the first four commandments are summed up in this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength ultimately you cannot dismiss the lord's day as unimportant because the lord's day is not about rules or burdens it is about love so if you say i don't care about this conversation about the lord's day that's legalistic you have a misconception of the purpose of the law what we do on the Lord's day is a reflection of our love for our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, my brothers and sisters, and as Paul said in Romans 13:10, love is the fulfillment of the law. It is all about love. Let us finish by reading once again the first table of the law, beginning in Exodus 20, verse 1 through 11, and we will be done. visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work you or your son, or your daughter, or your male, male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for reminding us today that uh, you have given us the first four commandments so that we may know how to properly approach you and how to properly relate to you as we do so in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for reminding us that you do indeed care about what we do with our days, for they have been made by you for our joy and your glory. Father, I pray now and, now and I have confidence that your spirit will apply this word into our hearts, and help us, Father, to discern uh, the truth that we have heard. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.